Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Uh, Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue peace with all men. And the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness spring up, springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance." Though we sought for it, tears. For you have not come to a mountain that may be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which uh, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further words should be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command: if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, "I am full of fear and trembling." But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. And this is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much again for bringing us here today and for getting us through another week. We pray, Lord, just that this time would be pleasing to you and a blessing to us, that we would be here to hear what you have to say to us. Lord, for that, we pray that you would open our ears to hear, open our hearts to receive your truth, and open my mouth to speak it. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been going through this whole Hebrews thing, and I keep having to repeat the plot to myself because so much of what is being said now is stuff that gets quoted all over the place. Like you see, if you're going to see a cross stitch of something, guaranteed it's going to be from Hebrews somewhere. The problem is, is that once you know a verse, then you've got it stuck in your head as to what it is, and... So when you run across, you know, like uh, laying aside all or every encumbrance of the sin which so easily entangles us, it's easy to put that into the context of where you've heard it before. But it's important to remember that what the author here is saying is to these Hebrew Christians who are under massive persecution. And so, like, he's saying to them, all right, so whatever is causing you to think about going back, get rid of it, right? So, with that thought in mind, we have to remember that the audience here is to Hebrews. Hebrews had a concept of sin which is well-defined and well-known. And when he was talking to them, and he was saying, you know, you need to leave aside your encumbrances, and they would know, okay, I have this list of sins in my head, I know what they are. 
He would also, and we know what they were too. We don't have to guess. They wrote it all down. It was nice. So when it says that you will discipline your father, uh, discipline or the father would discipline you as a father disciplines their son, that would mean something specific to them. And furthermore, we know what it means to them, and so we don't have to guess. Or to do this fun thing of putting it in sort of a modern context, like this was just words spoken into the air. These were words spoken to a particular people, in a particular place, at a particular time, and we know what those people were and believed. So when I say that in reference to this, there is this thing which gets repeated a lot, uh, which I kind of like. It's one of my favorite sayings. It is the... Uh, the hard sayings of the Bible, right? There are certain things in the Bible that are just difficult for people to accept and believe, right? Uh, and you all have your list. I do too. It's the things we just don't like in the Bible. If we had the power to take a black magic marker and cross out certain things in scripture, we know exactly which verses we'd be going at first, right? The thing about these hard sayings is that they change over time. Like, believe it or not, there was a time when saying that uh, belief in Jesus is enough that you don't need a church to bless you and bring you into heaven, but that Jesus is enough for you. There was a time when that was a difficult thing for people to accept. Now, we, of course, go, well, I mean, duh. But 500 years ago, they were fighting wars over this kind of thing. So the idea of when we think of stuff in the Bible that we wish wasn't there, understand it's now we wish it wasn't there. But in the past, they didn't have any problems with it at all. We're going to run into some of these things here. So we have to keep that in mind as we go on. And let's just read through it. Because unfortunately, this is a section in which a few hard sayings for us are going to come up. First off, we uh, the, the one that's easy, though, the one that we get, pursue peace with all men, or pursue peace with all men, which means that you can not have to pursue them with a lady. No, I'm kidding. The... Um, <laughs> Yeah, men in the sense of being humans, right? Now, we know what that means, and we say to ourselves, well, yes, obviously, we have to pursue peace with our neighbors, but what does that mean in a larger context? I mean, does that mean that we are to pursue peace at all costs? Does this mean that we should be pacifists, right? Like not go to war or anything like that? It's an interesting concept to me, probably just to me, uh, but I find it fascinating. There is nothing in the New Testament that really specifically lays out what Christians are supposed to do should they win. All throughout New Testament, it talks about persecution and how we are going to be pursued because we are not like people, that we are going to be put down, that we need to overcome because Christ has overcome. And so we kind of, reading through the New Testament, we kind of get this pessimistic attitude almost, right? That the Christian church is always going to be under attack. But the thing is, 
in somewhere around 318 AD, a Roman emperor by the name of Constantine said he had a vision of Christ and right before a battle decided that Christ was his guy and that uh, he won that battle and took over Western Rome. And in doing that, he said, well, there's this Jesus guy that I had this vision of, so why don't we just make killing Christians illegal? How about, how about we do that? And all of a sudden now, the Christian church found itself in a position it had never been in before. For three centuries, they had been afraid at every moment that they would be killed. They had to make compromises. They had to flee. They had to die. They'd been fed to lions. Various other horrible things had happened to them. And now, all of a sudden, none of that was happening anymore. And they found themselves in a weird position, and they said, okay, well, now what we do? do we do? Later, about 50 years later, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now, how do you take the New Testament, which talks about persecution and overcoming that, and go, okay, but we won, though. We're now in charge. And I would say that the last 17 centuries of, well, particularly Europe, have been trying to answer that question. So when we talk about pursuing peace with all men, what does that mean? Well, so in our context, we have a little bit more of a reference, right? Because um, what we're, uh, because we have, not really a persecution, but kind of. If you were to go into the pink iguana upstairs and start quoting Bible verses, you will find out very quickly that you are simply not welcome there. And you may find out that you lose some friends after the fact. So, that's fine. How are we to then uh, just go up there and be a jerk because these people need Jesus? Well, I mean, they do need Jesus. But that would be kind of the opposite of pursuing peace, wouldn't it? Like just going up, just going into some place you know is going to cause some trouble just to cause trouble is probably not something that a Christian should do. And I think in this particular case, that's what it's talking about. Remember, these Hebrews were under pressure from their neighbors, from their governments, from all around them to turn away to go back to the old ways. They were punished for it. They were, um, they, they were punished for it. So what we find here is this uh, exhortation, if you will, towards not becoming a troublemaker. Do what you can to not get arrested, honestly. Do what you can to be accepted in your community. As uh, in the book of Romans, it would say that we are to live, uh, live at peace with our neighbors. But, and this is the whole pursuing thing, right? We're supposed to try, right? Because in Romans 
12, 18, it says, live at peace with your neighbors as far as it is up to you. We cannot control other people's attitudes. We cannot control what they do. That we can't, and honestly, it's none of our business what they think of us. That's them. They can think what they will. We are to try to be at peace. So if you find yourself in a position where you are not at peace with your neighbors, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are wrong or yet you are doing the wrong, wrong thing. It just means you have tried, assuming you have, and it isn't working. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes you're just a jerk like myself. However, there have been plenty of times where I have not been a jerk and been just as hated at the table where I was, despite the fact that I was trying to be nice. But that's what we're talking about in this instance. Pursue peace with other people. In other words, don't be a giant jerk. Don't go out there putting yourself to where you're going to get in trouble. There's a plenty of... Uh, um, Younger Christians that I knew that were actually specifically going into areas just to get into fights. Not like fist fights, but just like to make people upset uh, in order to preach the gospel to them. I would suggest to you that that's not, that's not a good thing. Don't do that, right? Don't put yourself in a position where you're going to be uh, purposely antagonistic. All right, so the next section, though, is a little bit uh, more... Is a li so we get that, whatever, be nice. We, we have no trouble with that. But now we're going to start getting into the stuff that's a little more difficult. So pursue peace and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. All right, sanctification is a big word. Um, sanctify just means to clean or to make holy, right? You know, sacraments are the holy things we have um you know basically thinking think of it as um the process of being made more uh holy more well behaved more um uh, more like those good christians right it's the process of becoming good the process of holiness. In fact, it's kind of the same thing that we see here back in um, where it says, uh, For they disciplined us for a short time as best seemed to them, but he disciplined us for our good that we may share his holiness. It is that which reflects the nature and character of God, and sanctification is the process of becoming more like God. Romans... 22, or Romans 22, Romans 6, 22. If you have 22 chapters in your book of Romans, get another Bible. All right, uh, Romans 6, 22. Yeah, you're just jealous. That's possibly true. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification. And the outcome, eternal life. So one of the benefits of being saved by Christ is holiness. Here's your gift. You get to be more holier, right? But here's the thing. If you start in verse 15, you find this interesting 
way of understanding it. It says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? How many times have you heard that uh, nowadays where the grace of God covers me? And so therefore, there is nothing that is unlawful for me. And that's true, by the way. However, the, the person asks Paul, so what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? And here's this interesting answer. May it never be. Now that, I have been told by people who know these things, is a bit more strongly worded in the Koine Greek. It's more of the no moron kind of response than it is a may it never be. Or, well, certainly not. It's more of a are you nuts kind of strength of result. So, should we sin because we're now under grace? No, dummy. And then he continues, do, not, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But, thanks be to God, that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were freed in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the outcome of these, those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, the outcome, eternal life. And then the verse that everybody knows, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Puts that 623 in a bit of a different context, doesn't it? It's not just like the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. We hear that all the time. And it's true in Amen and Hallelujah. But he's putting that in the context of Christians who continue to sin because they think God's grace is going to cover them. And he's saying, no, when you sin, you're earning death, and, that's, and death is bad. Don't do that. So when you get there, you find that uh, what he's saying is that going back to Hebrews, and this is the issue. So you see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. You don't want to be doing this Christian thing as hard as it is, because let's be honest, Coke and Hookers is fun, and you miss out on that as a Christian, and which is too bad, really, because, I mean, like I said, it's a blast. So I've heard. Anyway, um, the... But... It says, but see that no one comes short of the grace of God. Here these are, these poor Hebrew Christians who are being pressured to go back to the old system of sacrifices, of law. And he's saying, you've come this far. Wouldn't it be a shame having come this far that you fall short of grace? Wouldn't that be awful? I mean, you, 
You don't want to do that. And he says here something right after it. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many have been defiled. There is no sure way to get yourself out of the path of Christ than to allow this bitterness to root in your heart. And believe me, this is super easy. This idea that what I'm calling it, it's the it's not fair principle. This sneaks into every single one of us, myself all the time, where you say that it's not fair. Look at what I have done for you or something like that. Or look at what these other people get. Why don't I get that? Or I've been good for all these years. It hasn't gotten any easier. Why is it like this? This idea that you're just bitter inside. You're upset because things haven't gone your way. And I'll tell you what, this is, if you don't think that this can happen to you, then it's probably happened to you. And you're dealing with it now. Because it's so easy. It's so deceptive. But this, when we talk about the bitterness, this root of bitterness, he's mentioning something specific. Or at least he's throwback to something these guys would have heard about. In the book of Deuteronomy is the last speech of Moses. And he is trying to get everyone to go into the land of promise. And he is warning them of what will happen to them in both paths. He says, if you pursue righteousness, the land will be yours and it will bear fruit and honey and everything that is good. However, if you turn away from the Lord, these things will happen. And in that passage, 29:18, lest there shall be among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose hearts turn away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations, lest there shall be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. That would be the root of bitterness. Wormwood we have is like a real wood that we have nowadays, but wormwood back then is just worm-eaten wood, rotten wood. Um, and these sorts of plants would often make the trees that they're in bear fruit that was rotten, poisonous, bad to eat, and stuff like that. So what we're talking about is this idea that there is some sort of rot that starts within you that eventually produces these poisonous fruits on the outside. And that's this root of bitterness. And it's caught up in our past. And we don't take it seriously enough. But this root that grows, and it starts so small with a, it's not fair, or why did you do this? <laughs> but it starts to grow and grow and grow. And as it says in the book of Hebrews, is that, and by it, many have become defiled. Now, defiled is one of those words in English. It means to have become really, really gross. Like, for instance, if you have something that is really, really nice, 
and someone comes in and takes a big, hot, steaming dump on it, it has become defiled. So here is a warning that Paul gave to Titus, one of his acolytes. Uh, Titus, which is two books back, by the way, 1.15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. And then there's this. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. They have become defiled. They are no longer even capable of doing a good. Right? That's what it is. They have professed that they are Christians and you can... They, they talk a good game, but you can see what they're doing. And at that point, they've become worthless for good deeds. And so what are we talking about with that? Well, we don't have to guess. He just said, comes right out and said it, that there be no immoral or godless person. In, in your versions, you might see that there be no more sexual immorality or uh, faithlessness, unholiness, unrighteousness, right? Now... The reason why you get these uh, things going back is because that word immoral, in my version, or the word sexual immorality in your versions, is always the same word in Greek. It's always porneia. Now, as I can sound words out in Greek, I went to check my Greek version to see uh, if this was, in fact, the correct term that I was talking about, was that sexual immorality, porneia? And I looked at it, and oddly enough, it was sitting right there, and um, without pronouncing it in Greek, but just pronouncing it like in English, uh, it was talking about any sexual immorality, and the any is, is uh, tis or tis, right? So it was just sitting there going, tis pornos. I'm like, oh, well, there it is then. <laughs> Tis pornos. I was like, all right, so I got the right word. Sexual immorality is the word porneia, right? Now, just like a photograph is a light image, right? Photo, photon, right? Light image. Porno, pornography, pornograph is sexually immoral images or depictions, right? The word doesn't mean watching porn. It word means the sexually immoral. And we know, again, what this was because in Greece, it was the same thing that you would associate with watching a porn now, right? It means exactly the same thing. When you see the word sexually immoral in the Bible, you need not guess what they were talking about because you know what it is. You have the internet. You've seen it. It is that which is sexually immoral as though you... Well, anyway, I don't need to keep uh, harping on that. The point is that it is the kind of sexual activity that exists outside of marriage... And that marriage being a man and a woman. 
Everything that exists outside of that context is, in the Bible, pornea, sexual immorality. And if you look through the New Testament, it is constantly warning people to not do that. But it's always, this is always the first one, right? Like, if you're going to get down that root of bitterness road where you veer off the path, chances are this is the one that you're going to mess up on, right? Because let's, let's be perfectly frank, it is a need. It is not a want, it is a need. Our first command in the Bible was to go forth and multiply. Well, there is only one way that humans get to multiply, and it's not through uh, it's not through mitosis. We are sexual beings. We were created to be sexual beings, and therefore it is a need. Oddly enough, what they have found is that the drive, the sexual drive that is in humans, comes from the exact same brain structure that thirst and hunger comes from. So they say that what a human needs is water and food to survive. Well, that exact same section also covers horny. This is something that is deeply set inside of us, and therefore it is something, is a drive for us, and therefore when we are in a situation where we're ready to sin, this is going to be the first one we're going to be tempted on. And again, we know exactly what this is. It's the, because, or what it's like to be back with these Hebrew Christians and what they were dealing with, because it's the same thing now, right? Corinth was basically Las Vegas of the Greek world. It's where you went for the coke and hookers and gambling. And which is why when you read about the, uh, the, in the book of Corinth, why this church was having such trouble, just imagine being in Las Vegas nowadays and being a brand new church and the problems that those guys would have. And you can imagine what those problems would be in Corinth. We have an analogous situation everywhere you go. It's on the internet. It's on TV. You are, uh, you can't walk through town without being assaulted with uh, your senses being assaulted with all of the come hitherness. You can't, you are being told that all manner of things that uh, are, you are supposed to um, approve of. But it says, and we'll, we'll cover this very soon because it's in chapter 13 but it says that let marriage be held in honor among you and let the marriage bed be undefiled the bible does not say don't have sex i want to be very very clear on that and also the new testament is not telling people to be prudish in fact in first corinthians in chapter 7 we find an entire section on um Paul telling married people to not abstain from each other because you're going to get into sin if you don't. Whole section on married couples, y'all need to be having sex and stop not having sex. This is important. Do that. However, we 
have been told by the outside world that sex, that the biblical idea of holy sex is old-fashioned, shall we say. I cannot, I have heard this time and time and time again. People will say you have to have sex before you're married because if you don't, you won't know if you're sexually compatible. But, I mean, let's even take God out of the picture on this. Ten years from now, when you've got a couple of kids, sex is difficult in with young kids around. It just is. You're working constantly. She's dealing with all of the brats. Um, she's tired. You're tired. Oh, well, except for my little princess, of course. I was never a brat. Yes. Um, and things are just not... The idea of having sexy time is not is really not there. On top of that, you're different people. Ten years into a marriage, you're not the same person you were at the beginning of the marriage. It's you're just not. And so at that point, you might think, well, we've stopped become we've stopped being sexually compatible because we have different needs. And if you started this whole relationship out with the idea that some sort of sexually compatibilityness was a prerequisite for this relationship, well now what do you do? Well, think about it. Now you might think, well, this marriage isn't working, and so you're going to leave. I mean, if you base your relationship on this idea of sex, you're going to fail at your marriage. You just are. Because things come and go. Your relationship is supposed to be... Oh, come on, you people. Anyway. <laughs> the Anyway. Things ebb and flow. And this idea is that... Oh my <laughs> this is why we can't have nice things. Anyway, so we'll leave that. So the Bible says, no, you are to honor the marriage bed. Not the before bed. The marriage bed. Because you are to get into a covenant relationship with your spouse. A covenant. In other words, something that is stronger than a promise. I said I would be here no matter what. And in that context is where the Bible puts proper sexual um, behaviors and anything outside that. But this is cryptid to the church, by the way. I've heard Christians tell me all the time this idea that, uh, I just heard it the other day, that people should live with each other before they're married. Because you need to know what you're getting into. Well, if you're living with each other before you're married, you're having sex. And stop pretending that you're not. You, <clears throat> I've also heard many, many Christians tell me that, that homosexual marriage is a fine thing. Except that, according to the Bible, that isn't marriage. Like, they can call it that if they want, but it isn't. It's like saying, I have, a, I have eight rhinoceroses in my house. And you went, well, where are they? I said, well, one's right there. There, there's my rhinoceros. He says, no, 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 that's a cat. I know, but I'm going to call it a rhinoceros. Well, it isn't. 
Well, like I said, you can call gay marriage marriage all you want. It's not marriage. They have defiled the marriage bed. But we have been we have been told in the church that we have to accept that as a real thing. No, it's not. It's pornea. These things are a big problem that we're dealing with in the church, and it's something that they had to deal with back then, too. So it's not like this is new. But everybody wants to reinterpret what this idea of sexual immorality is because it's fun. And if we can figure out a way to excuse it, we can do it. And if you don't think this temptation is going to happen to you, then you're wrong. <clears throat> and we say that we are told to accept any and all in their particular defilement, and we're not to call it defilement. Except, here's the problem. It always says, well, God says, do not judge. Remember what it said in 13.4. Let marriage be held and honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For fornicators, that's that pornea again, and adulterers, God will judge. So God will judge them. And we're supposed to be like God. Now, I'm not saying you know who's, is, who's going to heaven and who isn't. That's above your pay grade. You're not in charge of all that. But this idea that somehow Jesus loves them all the same? Well, not according to the Bible. But it's more than just that. Right? It's not just the sexually immoral. It roots this in this. Or godless person like Esau. For those of you not familiar, Esau was Jacob's brother. Jacob being Israel. And he was the firstborn son of um, Isaac, who was the firstborn son of Abraham. Esau was to inherit the kingdom of God, the promise of Abraham. But he comes in one day, and he's hungry after a long day of hunting and whatnot. And he smells this soup that Jacob is, where, is making. Now, Jacob was actually a bit of a mama's boy. By the way, Jacob means leg puller. Like, as in, to pull someone's leg, to trick them. It's because when, uh, uh, when Esau was coming out first, Jacob's arm apparently came out and tried to pull him back in so that he could be first, or something. Anyway, that's what the Bible says. So, he was called leg puller. And when we say pulling someone's leg, that's what Jacob means. Anyway, so he was like, well... I'm making some soup. What will you give me for it? And Esau said, with just this flippant attitude, it says, well, I'll give you my inheritance. You can have my, you can have everything. I'm hungry. And Jacob said, deal. And Esau gave up the promise that God had made to Abraham for a bowl of soup. <laughs> But this idea is that you're making a mockery of the first institution presented by God. We were put in the garden. One man, one woman, go forth and multiply. And here you are making 
uh, here you are defying the covenant of the whole thing. But like I said, it's more than just that. You're creating this spiritual vacuum, and not just you, but the other person too. And at least in Esau's case, that food nourished him. He got something out of the deal. Here is in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, which again, remember, Corinthians was written to people in Vegas. And what happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth, right? So 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee immorality, there's that word, Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but, he, but the porny man sins against his own body. So not so Esau gave up his kingdom for a bowl of soup, but that bowl of soup cured his hunger. And he was not hungry, and that food was used to make strength and more of him. He benefited from it. In sexual immorality cases, you didn't even get that. But it is the other one. We throw away our inheritance of Christ for way less than that. We throw it away for acceptance among our peers. We will sit there and not call sin sin because we don't want to be labeled as one of those mean ones. We want respect, right? And to be taken seriously. This is the one I deal with all the time. This is as a someone who does not believe it as evolution, I don't say that aloud because I get made fun of by people who do. And I want to be taken seriously. And after you say that you don't believe in evolution, no one will ever take you seriously again. Believe me, been there, done that. Or we say we want to be respected by our community. So we'll give up our inheritance. We'll compromise on little sins, little things, little whatevers to be respected by humans. We will let this root of bitterness grow up inside ourselves so that a bunch of humans that at the outset are going to make it 120 years and we'll deny the respect, the, the acceptance, and the love of the one who made the universe. As Jim Elliot once said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Righteousness, holiness, these things that we pursue Pursuing sanctification. These things lead to acceptance by God. That cannot go away. And yet we trade that in for a respectability from humans who are going away. As God said, this, the well, he's saying the immoral will be judged. <laughs> they will be thrown into the lake of fire. And so these people that you're trying to please... Well, they're going away. But in Christ, you are not. But, you say, I have no friends. I have no girlfriend. I have no wife. 
or whatever, or you say my marriage was terrible, or you say my family was awful, and this is where the wormwood starts. You look at the things that you don't get to have, and you say, but, but I deserve better, or I deserve something nicer, or something. This, why did you do this to me, God? Or why did you deny this from me, God? Things starts to grow and it brings up inside of us and it grows and it grows and it grows until, as it says, many have become defiled. And as we read a few weeks ago or whatever, this great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. See, because it warns us here. when he, um, For you know that even afterwards, Esau, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it in tears. Esau came to uh, Isaac at the end of his life to receive the blessing of the patriarch of the family. The I solemnly swear you are now the inheritor of everything. You are the one who gets to keep the blessing of Abraham. But the thing was, the little leg puller Jacob had already snuck his way in to get it. And Esau had sold his inheritance for a bowl of soup and when the time came to get the blessing, Jacob ran in and got the blessing instead because Isaac was blind and he tricked him. And when Esau came in later, he said, but, but my blessing, I, I want my blessing. And Isaac said, it's gone. I've already given it. I can't take it back. And so Esau begged for it in tears. And you know what Isaac did? He cursed him. He told him, you're going to be full of war and raging and mad. You're going to live out in the wilderness. And eventually your entire your entire tribe will be destroyed and ruled by, by Jacob. He sought repentance with tears and he didn't get it. I personally am convinced, and this is again my opinion, that faith is a gift from God. You don't just get to have faith, it is given to you. But there is a point at which you've gone too far and you can't go back. There's always the thing that people ask, it says Christianity is so stupid. So you're telling me that if Hitler accepted Jesus on his deathbed, that he would go into heaven. You've heard that said a lot and people say Christianity is ridiculous. What about justice? Well, I would say this. What Hitler had done was so horrible that he was never going to repent. He had passed that point. He had crossed the point in which repentance even isn't even on the table anymore. And like Esau, even if he sought it in tears, he would not have received it. There is a point in your life as a Christian where you've frankly gone too far. Now, I'm not saying 
that as a Christian, you can lose your salvation. But I am saying there is a point in which you can fake this whole Christianity thing, and it's no longer an option for you. And if that doesn't keep you up at nights, then you're not properly thinking it through. And this is one of those hard sayings of the Bible that we talk about. People don't want to hear this. It's not about accepting Jesus into your heart. It's about repentance and acceptance. There is a behavior component to Christianity that the author wants us to see here. And furthermore, as he's been warning all of these guys, there is no going back to the old way. Those sacrifices don't work anymore. Jesus is the new covenant. He's also saying, guys, these, there are people who say they're Christians, but they're sinning, and you gotta wonder, and there is a point at which it's too late for them. But to even bring up the idea that Christians should behave nowadays is to instantly get yourself labeled as a Pharisee and a fundamentalist. And people will judge you for this. But as we saw in Titus, by their actions, they show that they do not, or they do not have Christ in them. John would warn, it says, if you do not love, uh, if you do not love your fellow Christians, the love of God is not in you. There are these warnings. These are the hard sayings. And they're the hard sayings nowadays. Nobody had a problem with these a hundred years ago. We have come to a place in our society, we're telling people that you have to behave as a Christian has labeled you as a bad, unloving, no good, fundamentalist, awful person who's probably not a Christian and he definitely doesn't love like Jesus did. But this is what the Bible says. So, what do you do? I don't want to leave it at that because frankly, I hate leaving it at that. It's depressing. It's scary, it's awful, it keeps me up at night. So, what do we do? Well, rule number one, really easy, repent. Repent, metanoia. It means, it's a military term. It means about face, right? When the, when the Greeks were practicing their army training and they were doing drills, they'd be marching along and the captain would call out metanoia. And they would stop and they would turn in the other direction and they'd march back. Right? About face. Repent. About face. You're doing these bad things. It happens. Believe me, it happens. You got this root of bitterness in you. Believe me, it happens. Turn around. Immediately start going the other way. Okay, but how? That's hard. Or maybe you don't know how to do that. You don't have the tools to stop doing what you're doing. Which happens to me. All the time. There is a particular thing that I crave above all others, and that is respect and admiration of my peers. I do not get to have that 
as all my peers are programmers and atheists. I don't get it. And that bothers me. It really, really does. And it has led to me having all kinds of problems in the past, some of which I'm still dealing with. So what do you do? Well, I repent. I don't get to have that. Oh well. Where do I get the tools for having to being able to get away from this need of mine? Being able to say, hey, I, I repent, going that way. But what 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 is that way? How do I do that? What what can I do to stop doing these things that I'm doing? Whatever it is that you're doing. Well, you don't have to guess. It's right here in our scriptures. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, which is, um, don't, 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 don't you do that. Not of us, yes. For correction, hey, you're not doing great there. Let's. What you should be doing is this. And training in righteousness. Ooh, that's a good one. That the man of God may be adequate, self-sufficient, equipped for every good work. So, where do we turn to? to find the tools that we need to repent and leave behind these things. It's God. It's our Bibles. It even says here, all scripture. It's good for correction, reproof, training in righteousness, so that you'll have everything you need to do good works. So, read your Bibles. And another thing, just a little tip that I picked up, when you sin, and you will, just stop. And then when you sin again, just stop. Repeat as necessary. People says, well, I can't stop. Yes, you can. You can stop, like, for a second. And then stop again for another second. And then next week when you do it again, stop. Don't do it anymore. You know, it's not like this is a once-for-all kind of, I'm done now, we're good, I mean, if it is, then, man, God bless you. I've heard of people who just says, well, I'm, I'm not being a bad person anymore. They completely repent. They go the other way. They never sin again. Well, I mean, not never sin again, but they never have those problems again. And I'm super impressed. Not me. Me, it's a complete try and try and try and try and try and try. But above all that... Even more than any of that, trust in Jesus. Listen to this. We read this last part. I'm going to cover the whole thing. For you have not come to a mountain that may be touched, right, the mountain of Zion, and to a blazing fire, or to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and, and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further words should be spoken to them. Can you imagine? Right? You've not been, you've not come to the, to the judgment of God. You've not come to the God who spoke from out of the mountain, who people were afraid to even hear his voice. 
In fact, they were afraid because they didn't like the whole command. Like, even if the cows go up this holy mountain, you gotta kill them because they're defiled. This is my mountain. You don't get to come up here if you're not holy, and those cows are not. Keep them away. You did not come to that God. In other words, you didn't come to the God who deprives. Because that's part of bitterness, isn't it? I don't get something. Where's mine? The book of Hebrews says we didn't come to a God who takes away. We didn't come to a God who keeps you at length. But no. Listen to this. But you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the myriads, thousands of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. You have come not to judgment, but to promise. You have not been to come to Jesus to be told off. You've been come to Jesus to say, come and join me. This isn't a don't go in the bad people pool. It's we have a better pool. Come in here. It's to goodness, not deprivation. He's not trying to keep stuff from you, except the bad stuff. He doesn't want you to live in this filth. He wants you to come and join him in his holiness, in the heavenly places. He wants you to have a better hope than anything you can have here. This root of bitterness that grows is based on here and now. And he says, don't repent because you can't have it. Repent because I'm this way and I'm better than all that. I have better things for you than all of that. Come to Jesus for he is our hope. He is a better hope. Christ, we beg you to be our guide and to be the rock of which we can stand on. Lord, we pray that you would just help us to turn away from everything that we don't like about our life and to become content with what we have got in our life. And Lord, help us to not look at these things that are around us that we want desperately, but that we cannot have we cannot touch, and we cannot taste, not as things which are to be desired, but as things that we just don't want. Lord, help us to become righteousness, but Lord, help us to make it easy. Lord, help us to trust in you and what you have provided for us. Help uh, trust in that you are the one who knows what you're doing and that maybe we should listen to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.